come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 206 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. So on this episode here for you is going to be Traverse of the Threes, number 26, as I have The Exorcist Believer and Robot Monster as my two featured reviews. Now, this doesn't make the greatest double feature here, but what I was actually thinking about is that we both have... Well, Exorcist Believer has two families that are in peril, while Robot Monster has a family in peril, so that's kind of the through line, is that we have these families trying to come together and solve a problem. So then, also for mini-reviews here, I have Dead and Buried. This is a first-time watch for that one for an October Movie Challenge. I do have The Tunnel that I got to watch with Jamie. I gave a rewatch to The Boogeyman, which is my rewatch for 2023 film. Then I got to watch Amityville 3D, which is my Traverse of the Threes rewatch. And then I also got to finish things out with The Lair of the White Worm, The First Power. Both of those are for a movie challenge, as well as I got to see They Live finally in the theater. So I do actually have some stuff is that I wanted to give to you, some housekeeping for some like advanced critic copies of some stuff that I'm going to be checking out here in the nearest future and let you know about that and... There is a book that is out called Sister of Darkness, which this is about a psychic who actually has worked, I believe, in L.A. and everything like that. The manuscript was sent over to me. I just haven't had a chance to read it, but I did at least want to get that out there. That I believe that's available, so if you know where that is, check that out. Also, Leo Trevlian is a book that I'm supposed to be reading as well that I just haven't had a chance to get to because of just life and everything like that. Also, a third book about some stories before Scotland was Scotland, so Duncan, if you end up hearing this... This might interest you. Maybe not. doesn't matter either way. But that's called The Pictish Princess and some other stories. And then I also wanted to alert everybody's attention to Proof Film Festival and Gud Powder and Sky unveiling some special screenings there for new Alter and Dust shorts. So this is actually happening next week in the Culver Theater. And that is in Culver City, California. I actually have been offered a press pass. I just do not live out there, so I won't be able to make it. But just some of the stuff that is going to be available, it's like Death's Knot, 
which is a nine-minute short. There's also Future Boys, done by Julian Clark. That's a 10-minute short. There's Yummy Mummy, who is done by Gabriella. I do not want to mispronounce your name, but that's a 15-minute short. And there's also Violet Butterfield, Makeup Artist for the Dead. That's a 13-minute short. Now, these are all some of the stuff there. I'm actually going to probably include some of this stuff in the show notes and everything like that. But I at least wanted to make sure I made mention of it on this podcast here since I won't be able to make it. But if you're actually in the area, go ahead and check it out. So let me go ahead then and get you over to a brief break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini review here is going to be Dead and Buried. This is from 1981, directed by Gary Sherman. It was written between Ronald Shushet and Dan O'Bannon. This stars James Ferentino, Melody Anderson, and Jack Albertson. This is a horror mystery film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb. And a 3.4 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being set in a small coastal town where after a series of gory murders committed by mobs of townspeople against visiting tourists, the corpse began to come back to life. So now this movie that I feel like I saw the case at the video store, but for whatever reason, I never took it home. I'm shocked to be honest since my father is a fan of zombie films. Now this is a little bit different take and then going back you know, more to a traditional sense. I'll come back to that though, but I'm... Glad that I finally am checking this one out as part of an October movie challenge. So I want to start is this. I don't want to spoil things, but this could be a reveal. Now, this may come of a spoiler, but this is a different take on zombies. What is interesting about what we get here is that Dan O'Bannon wrote this. He would go on to do The Return of the Living Dead, which is another different take on this monster. Now, what we get here, though, is more akin to voodoo zombies and less of George A. Romero's take with his Of the Dead series. So that set up, let me get into the setting. I love this coastal location. It made me think of things like the birds or Messiah of Evil. There's an isolation aspect to it, and all the townspeople are tight-knit. When outsiders show up, they don't necessarily take kindly to them. It also, to a lesser degree, makes me think of the area where I went to high school. Now, these people tend to stick to their groups and not necessarily venture out. That is what makes Dan not necessarily fit in, even though he's from there, as he left too long. And this would be Dan, who is Sheriff Dan Gillis, portrayed by Ferentino. He went away for college to get his criminology degree and then decided to come back to be the sheriff. So this helps build the atmosphere. What also does this is that it doesn't mess around getting into it. Now we have George being attacked to kick us off, and he is portrayed by Christopher Allport. It is from there that we get to know the town a bit before a hitchhiker portrayed by Lisa Marie is attacked along with this homeless guy and another family. I could be leaving out more, but that's what it feels like. As I mean, what I will say is it doesn't lag in the runtime. It is just over 90 minutes and we are getting kills at good intervals. In between there, there are bits of information that is given to us to help piece things together. We never get an explanation, but there's enough here to fill it in for me. I guess this is also based on a novel, which I've added to my list of ones that if I can track it down, I want to read it. There's one last bit for the story that I wanted to bring up. Our killers take pictures and film what they're doing. That is even creepier as they're keeping a record. It makes sense at the reveal and seeing who is behind it. There is even scarier in seeing an attack and then seeing the person who did it acting normal in town. I love the idea of not knowing what people do behind closed doors. As a homebody, I am leery of people in general. I also like that we see someone attacked and then they appear as new members of this town as if they've always been there. This cult is growing. 
So that should be enough there. Let me go over to the acting. I thought this was good across the board. I like Ferentino as a sheriff that knows something is going on, but he is missing pieces of information to put everything together. He is also being gaslit by his wife, which is a different than normal take. I like Anderson in her role. She is also good looking, so that helps. Now we also have a performance here that surprised me was Albertson. I only know him from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory where he's Grandpa Joe. He is great here as his mortician. There's just something off about him from when we first meet. So other than that, we have like Nancy Locke. There is Lisa Blout. Robert England is in this movie, which is part of the reason why I selected it. And then the rest of the townspeople are just solid. What I like is that we don't know who we can trust and who is in on it. So that also adds to the atmosphere. All that is left then would be filmmaking. The effects we got are good. When I saw Stan Winston's name attached, I knew that we were in good hands. The deaths we see are brutal. It is even creepier when we see that person being maimed and then being part of the town again. It made me question what was happening. There's a great scene here where Dobbs, now that is Albertson, cleans a skull and then redoes the face. That was done with time lapsing, so that looked great. The cinematography helps here as well. The framing of things is in a way where we don't see the seams. They also capture the isolated feel of this town. I'd also say that the soundtrack and design favorite role was needed. So in conclusion, this is a film that I'm glad I didn't sleep on any longer. It doesn't come up a lot, but I've only ever heard good things from people about it. We are getting a different take on the zombie narrative. That was done better as it captures this small town vibe and how this people are almost cult-like. The acting was good. Ferentino leads the way with Albert Sin right there as well. This is well made from the effects and cinematography being the best parts of that. If you like zombie movies, give this a watch as this explores interesting ideas for sure. So my rating for Dead and Buried is going to be an 8 out of 10. And for my second mini review here is going to be The Tunnel. This is from 2011. It was directed by Carlo Ledesma. This is written by Enzio Tadashi and Julian Harvey. This stars Belle Delia, Andy Rodendria, and Steve Davis. This is from 2011. It is a horror mystery thriller film that is from Australia. It is sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being... An investigation into a government cover-up leads to a network of abandoned train tunnels deep beneath the heart of Sydney. As a journalist and her crew hunt for the story, it quickly becomes clear the story is hunting them. So, this is a movie that I didn't know about until getting into podcasts. It would pop up periodically, and I believe that it's part of Daisy's Found Footage Challenge. It went on a list of movies for me to check out as well. So I decided to go ahead and do that when I needed a movie that took place underground for an October movie challenge. Jamie also thought this one sounded the best of the list that I gave to her, so we watched this one together. So where I'm going to start is that I love that this is a faux documentary. Jamie brought up that it feels more real because of that, which she's definitely right there, and I would agree with that. I didn't look up to see how much this is based in facts because part of this is that there is supposed to be like a drought in Australia where they are needing to potentially use these underground reservoirs and like these tunnels have flooded and everything. I wouldn't be shocked to learn that there was a drought around the time this was being made in Australia and it would make sense with what happened with like wildfires in recent memory as well. I know in America there are issues with like homeless people living in tunnels like we get here. I also don't see the issue unless they get hurt. Having these things that seem real help to build the mystique for the other aspects for sure. So I'm going to go next to be the location. It is terrifying to me to be in tunnels, although especially ones like this. I'm not claustrophobic per se, but if I can't see the exit, 
or at least know where the exit is, that would terrify me. So I wouldn't be down here. It is so dark that if you don't have something to produce light, it's disorienting. This location is perfect for horror movies as it made me uneasy. What else works is the sound design. I told Jamie while watching this that if you hear yelling, you could blindly run in the wrong direction since sound carries funny, especially since we're having like cement and tunnels where it could just reverberate. So that adds the atmosphere here as well. And what they did was well done. So I'm not going to spoil what they find, but to be honest, I'm not completely sure. That is one gripe that I have, and I'm not going to hold it against it though either. With things that I've already said, they don't get a good look at it. We have glimpses or see it through night vision. That is strategic in part. We can't critique what we see. What I will say is that it is humanoid. Seeing the eyes glowing is terrifying as well. This also means they don't have a lot in the way of the effects in that department, since it's hidden or what we're seeing is only through night vision. I'll give credit here for working with what they have in the confines of your medium. And what I mean there is I'm going to go over to the filmmaking and I should say that this is filmed in the style of found footage. I told Jamie that a gripe myself and others have is why are you still filming? We have a news crew. Originally, they were trying to get a story. It is so dark down here. They need the light from the camera or the night vision from one that allows them to see as well as us. There's also that claustrophobic feel of where we are, and that works as well. And that hole in line there with the news crew makes me think of something like Wreck. Now, the cinematography also helps to capture some of the stuff as well with that feeling. All the sounds are diegetic, which adds realism. My only gripe is that it's hard to see, and I want to know more about what they encounter. I get why they don't, as our characters don't know. This is a personal thing as a horror fan, so I can't necessarily fault the movie. So then, where I'll go to here to kind of close things out a bit is the acting. I thought that Dalia, Rhododendra, and Davis, as well as Luke Arnold, were all solid. They all feel natural and part of this news team. What frustrated me is the character of Natasha, portrayed by Dalia, seems to be looked down upon for being a woman. So there's also Peter Ferguson, who's portrayed by Rhododendra, or however you'd say his name. Do apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Now, how he talks to her causes Steve, who is Steve Miller, and then you have Jim Tangles Williams, portrayed by Arnold. How Steve and Tangles see the way they talk makes him think that they hooked up. This feels real, though, especially when you have, like, immature people. Their acting fits, and I believe that these people are these people in real life, and I don't mean that necessarily as a negative. So then I'd also credit here James Caitlin. There's also Ben McLean. And the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. I'd also credit Goran D. Clute, who is listed as Stalker. I'm guessing he was whatever is after our group in the tunnels. So in conclusion here, this is a solid little found footage film from Australia. I like our setup. It feels real that this news team has discovered a story and investigating further. The government isn't being forthcoming with answers, which makes them delve deeper. Then taking this underground like they do is great. I love that setting. That alone is scary with the prospect of getting lost. I would like to see a and know a bit more about what they run into, but I get why we don't. The acting here is good to bring these characters to life. This is a well-made from the cinematography to the setting. And if you like this filming style, I'd recommend giving this one a watch for sure, as this is one that I hear a little bit of, but not nearly enough. So my rating here for the tunnel is going to be a 7 out of 10. I'm going to go a little bit brief here because I have a rewatch, and that is going to be The Boogeyman here from 2023. This is directed by Rob Savage. It was written between Scott Beck, Brian Woods, and Mark Heyman, and it's from the short story by Stephen King. Stars Sophie Thatcher, Chris Messina, and Vivian Lyra Blair. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from a co-production of the United States and Canada. 
This is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being still reeling from the tragic death of their mother a teenage girl and her younger sister find themselves plagued by a sadistic presence in their house and struggle to get their grieving father to pay attention before it's too late so this one if you'd like to hear a feature review it's going to be episode 188 which was traverse of the threes number 11 i had this paired up with the seventh victim doesn't make the greatest double feature but we do have families who are in peril and trying to find the answers to something before it is too late but this is a movie that I prefer to the one made back in the mid-2000s, which isn't saying a whole lot. I like that it takes the bulk of the short story to frame a specific scene and then does its own thing. And that's what a lot of times we get to do with Stephen King's short stories. What works here is the lore. I could use more of it, but I also can't fault the movie for giving us what they did. I thought the acting was solid. The cinematography is good, as was the sound design. They rely on CGI for the effects. Mostly for the creature, there's a little bit of other stuff that doesn't necessarily work, but the soundtrack fit for what was needed. This isn't a great movie to me. It pulled me, but I'll be honest, I don't know if it sticks to landing. I think it kind of goes a little bit generic. I think it's still worth a viewing in my opinion, and this did hold up after that second watch. I'm not sure I pulled anything additional from it though. I do think it explores some good things here with like grief and losing someone close to you and how you really need to kind of talk about your problems or they can fester and everything like that. This would pair up well with Smile from last year as this is kind of like a curse that comes after people who have experienced trauma. So after both viewings here for the Boogeyman from here and this year, I gave it once again a 7 out of 10. Then up next for you, I have Amityville 3D. This is from 1983, directed by Richard Fleischer. This was written by William Wales. It stars Tony Roberts, Tess Harper, and Robert Joy. This is a horror film that is from the United States and Mexico co-production there. This is currently sitting on a 4.2 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being a reporter moves into the Amityville house in defiance of the supernatural events connected to it and finds everyone around him besieged by the evil manifestations which are connected to a dynamic presence in the basement. So this is a movie that I knew was out there, but I didn't seek it out until trying to collect all the main franchise films of Amityville. What is a selling point is that this features a young Lori Loughlin, Meg Ryan, and Robert Joy. I was also terrified by the original as a child. The remake was one that I also dug when seen in the theater. I wasn't overly high on my first two watches of this, so I was curious to see what my Traverse of the Threes watch would bring me. So what I'm going to start is by saying that I like the original film. This isn't that one. Becoming a more seasoned cinephile, this isn't as bad as I remember though either. A big positive I'm taking away from this time is continuity. They don't come out and say it, but the events of the Amityville Horror happened. They bring up the DeFeos by name, and I believe that the character of Lisa recounts what Ron Jr. did there, and I can appreciate the care to not ignore these items, and Lisa is portrayed by Meg Ryan. The biggest drawback that I can say for anyone coming in is that this goes cheesy, as opposed to what the first two films in the series did, that is. I do like looking at this from the side of the skeptics, and that would be John and Melanie. They work for a magazine where they're trying to disprove the supernatural. And they are portrayed by Roberts as well as Candy Clark. They work with Elliot, who is Joy. And he has machines to record and gauge things. I believe I saw in the trivia that this is borrowing from the real-life account of investigator Stephen Kaplan. It seems he questioned the validity of Ed and Lorraine Warren as well as George and Kathleen Lutz about whether the Amityville house was haunted, I find it interesting to borrow this for the basis of the story. Now, despite this, I do have some missteps that I I don't 
think we get more information revealed. Instead, this feels like it's borrowing a similar story as the first two films while not taking it place as much in the house. We do get a sequence near the end where Elliot sets up to run an experiment to see what they can record. This goes into the ending, so there isn't a lot there or enough of it there either. We do get to see this dynamic entity behind the haunting, which I did like to an extent. It doesn't look great, but I have a soft spot for a practical creature. What we got here feels more like Gilman from Creature from the Black Lagoon. Not exactly, but inspired. Now, sticking with the filmmaking, this movie was shot in 3D and I want you to know it. There are so many things that will be turned towards the screen and supposed to pop out at you. Some work where others don't. I'd like to see a bit more of the horror elements to be in 3D if it worked. This comes off a bit much, and I did like what they did with the sound design as we hear voices which is in line with the previous movies, for The Haunting that is, and the rest of the soundtrack was fine. All that's left then would be the acting. I think it's solid across the board. Roberts plays the skeptic so well. What I'm curious about though is what happened with him and Nancy, who is his wife portrayed by Tess Harper. They aren't together anymore, and like why though? Like what ended their marriage? Because it seems like he wants to leave. Now, Harper works in this character. We see that she still loves John, but can't change his mind. I like Joy in his role. Clark was good as the sidekick to John. I'd also credit here John Beale, Laura Dana, John Harkins as like the charlatans of the house. It was also interesting to see a young Loughlin and Ryan. The rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. In conclusion, this is going to be the highest I've ever been on this movie. I've come to realize this isn't as bad as I remember. It still isn't great, though. I do like the continuity that's there. We are building in reference in the first two movies. Where they take this, though, wasn't great. Since we were fallen investigators, I did want more of that there. The acting was solid. They go a bit overboard with the shots being catered towards 3D. My guess is the studio had say there. And the effects other than that were solid in the soundtrack as well as design work for what was needed. One of the last solid Amityville films, in my opinion. So my rating here for Amityville 3D is going to be a 6 out of 10. Then I also got to watch The Layer of the White Worm. This is from 1988, directed by Ken Russell, who also wrote this, and it's from the novel by Bram Stoker. This stars Amanda Donahue, Hugh Grant, and Katherine Oxenberg. This is a comedy horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a... 3.4 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being, when an archaeologist uncovers a strange skull in a foreign land, the residents of a nearby town begin to disappear, leading to further inexplicable occurrences. So this is a movie that I learned about through the Fangoria Top 300 horror movies issue. It went on a list of ones to check out to expand my knowledge base. This is one that comes up on podcasts periodically, so it's one that also went on a list for me. What intrigued me was knowing that Ken Russell was a director, as he's an interesting filmmaker, and also being from a Stoker novel as another part for me. So, where I want to start is that this is an odd movie. I've already brought up that I expected it with Russell being part, being the writer-director here. Now, my favorite movie from him is The Devils. I've also seen parts of Tommy in Altered States, is another one I've seen all the way through. I get the idea that Russell doesn't believe in Christianity, or at least has issues with it. I can appreciate that commentary. My last bit for this opening, though, is going to be, I'm curious, is now to read the Stoker's original source material to see what was kept and what direction Russell decided to go in with it. So I want to start, though, as I love the basis of this movie. The local nobility is the Deamptons. The White Worm is supposed to have been slain by their ancestors. Now we have James, who is portrayed by Grant, points out that this isn't a worm in the sense that you would find in the ground. This is closer to Vrum, 
which is another name for a dragon. We also get to see the creature in the movie, and the best way to describe it would be a giant white worm. Going a further than this, though, they're bringing in the real Roman leader of Marcus Aurelius Mazarus Caraus. I mispronounced those last two, I'm sure. but Now, he led a revolt and named himself Emperor of the North over Britain and Northern Gaul. Now, Sylvia, who is portrayed by Donahue, has a bust of him in her house. One of the visions that Mary has is one where Sylvia is in a snake woman form as well as Romans. Something else about Caras is that he incorporated pagan ideas into their religion. Sylvia despises religion and has her rituals that she does, so I'm a sucker for all this and that pulled me in. So I should also say that Mary is portrayed by Sammy Davis. So now with all that backstory, I love how this gets incorporated into what is being told for the story. Angus points out the skull of a creature like this shouldn't be found in the same era as the Romans. We also get visions that fill in that Sylvia and her beliefs could be involved. I do need to bring up something else that's cheesy here is she references snake or terms associated with them a lot. It comes off as puns and it made me chuckle as well as roll my eyes. Now to end out this on a positive though, I love the fact that the local legend of the Deamptons also factors into how things play out. So since there isn't more to the story I want to go into, let me shift to the acting. Donahue, as our villain, I think is good. She doesn't even try to hide it. There is sexuality that she brings to the role, though, that would make you tempt the fates. We do see her mostly nude if you're curious. What surprised me was Grant's performance. He is someone that I think works for romantic comedies, but not don't really find him all that strong. I do like him as this rich guy who tries to figure out what is going on in this area. I would also say that Oxenberg, as well as Peter Capaldi and Davis were fine as his counterparts. I do have an issue with Capaldi as he plays it a little bit too much tongue-in-cheek and almost a caricature since he's supposed to be from Scotland. So then we also have like Stratford Johns as solid as Peters who is the butler to Lord James Deampton. I'd also say that we have Paul Brooke who is PC Ernie. He brings a bit of levity. I'd also say that Chris Pitt and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. All that's left then would be filmmaking. Let me go over to the cinematography first. This has a bit of a B-movie feel with how cheesy the dialogue and the jokes are on screen. How this is shot though is better than that. I'll also pull in the effects here. They don't look the best. The look of Sylvia as a snake woman is creepy though. There's also an odd sensuality to it. The nightmare images are creepy while also being good at filling in the backstory. This is something that Russell used in earlier movies he's done, and I'll say again, it is cheesy while still working. Soundtrack is odd as well. They use an Indian snake charmer song that made me laugh, and the sound design works for what was needed as well. So in conclusion, this is an odd little movie. I love the lore that is used. There are real elements incorporated in it, and a bit of folk horror to go along with that. That works for me. There's also a bit too much levity with the dialogue and music used. That did hurt the final product. I do like the cult and ritual stuff that we get as well. There is an element of vampirism, but not in the traditional sense. Outside of the issues I've given, the acting works for the most part, and this is made well enough with the effects, cinematography, and the editing. This won't be for everybody, but this is a B-grade art house film that has a bit of sleaze to it. If that works for you, I'd recommend at least a viewing. So my rating for the Lair of the White Worm is going to be a 7 out of 10. And then for my next review is going to be The First Power from 1990. This was written and directed by Robert Resnikoff. This stars Lou Diamond Phillips, Tracy Griffith, and Jeff Kober. This is a crime horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 
2.7 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being a res resolute L.A. to police detective and a female psychic must stop a dynamic serial killer who has given the powers of resurrection teleportation and possession so this is a film that i'm not entirely sure when i first heard about it i was talking with a buddy of mine uh ricky prejean and we both had this on a list to check out at some point my guess was that this looked cheesy so i avoided it this does tick a box for me though dealing with religious horror and this was moved up as part of an october movie challenge because it sufficed as a film from the 1990s as well as being one that involved satan so i want to start is that we have this interesting thing here now this is a neo-noir that ventures into the horror realm while watching this i knew that this was horror this is also a police procedural what is interesting here is that i can see why this gets classified as a neo-noir since russell who is portrayed by lou diamond phillips toes the line of breaking the law he breaks into Tessa's house early on to see if she has a connection with Channing. It takes time, but they finally believe that she is a psychic. And I do think the police procedural elements are fine. They need Tess to progress the story, and it's also a little bit convenient. Should say she is portrayed by Tracy Griffith, and then Cobra is Patrick Channing. So then I want to take this over to the religious elements with Channing. What I like here is that we they oversee them with care. The higher-up clergy don't at once believe Sister Marguerite who is portrayed by Elizabeth Arlen. She also doesn't help Russell and Tess when they show up at first. It takes time to change her mind. She knows that she can't sit idly by. What I also like is the idea of a serial killer who believes in the occult. I'm guessing this borrowed a bit from Richard Ramirez. Now I think he carved pentagrams on himself if memory serves. In the beginning Ch Channing is just a serial killer. His ritual works and that is where it goes into this idea of the three powers. There's also only been one living person who has all three and not shocking it was Jesus. I do like this idea that the three powers are possession, psychic, and resurrection. They can be bestowed from God or the devil. What I like here is that technically Channing gets all three. Now I should also say that there's some body jumping in this movie. Channing is a spirit, can only make people see things. He needs to possess a body to cause harm. What I like here is that he makes Russell or Tess see Channing. So that helps us as a viewer. If he wants to hide, then he will show himself as the person he is in. There's this idea here that it takes over those with no faith or on shaky ground mentally. He tends to favor drug addicts and alcoholics for this reason. This makes for an interesting thing that happens as things go along with who gets taken over. I think that should be enough for the story, so let's go over to the acting. I'd say for the most part that it's fine. Phillips isn't great here, but he works as his worn out detective. He's killed or arrested multiple serial killers, so we see that's weighing heavy on him, and that's believable. Griffith is fine as our psychic character. Again, my issue there is it feels convenient to progress the story. It does fall in line with one of the powers, so I, can, I digress there. Now, Cobra is great as our serial killer. There's a bit of nastiness about him, so we also get to learn part of why he is and feels the way that he's borrowed. And it, Well, it feels like it's borrowed from Ted Bundy. Not shocking there. So then we also have my Kelty Williamson... There's Elizabeth Arlen, Dennis Liscom, and Carmen Argenzanano. Then there's also Clayton Landy and Sue Girosi and David Gale. They're all solid in their roles. Some of these people are different cameos. I like Arlen as his nun who is our expert. That also helps progress things. No one stands out here, but I don't really have any issues either. So all that's left then would be filmmaking. This is right there before effects went with computers, so everything there felt practical. 
it doesn't necessarily need effects with how they frame things it also isn't leaning into them too much either the blood we got looked good having cobra be used when someone is possessed works there i'd say the cinematography was solid no issues there this is also edited well i like the sound design by using cobra's voice when it should be when we know he should be dead that is that is creepy soundtrack also worked for what was needed so in conclusion this is a solid neo-noir horror film what this is is a combination that works when done correctly there's a good blend here with the police procedural and the religious aspects. The folklore that is brought in fits the ideas of Christianity as well. I'd say the acting is solid across the board. No issues there. This is well made. I'd say the effects weren't the best, even when they're limited. We also get some good cinematography and sound design. Not the most exciting horror movie, but it has its moments. And this is much better than I was expecting, even though I tried to come in even keel. So my rating here for the first power is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. Then my last mini review here for this week is going to be They Live. This is from 1988, directed by John Carpenter, who also wrote this, and it's from the short story by Ray Nelson. Stars Rowdy Roddy Piper, Keith David, and Meg Foster. This is an action horror sci-fi thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being... They influence our decisions without us knowing it. They influence our senses without us feeling it. They control our lives without us realizing it. They live. So this is a movie that I remember my dad enjoying and would catch it when it was on the movie channels. It wasn't until college that I actually watched this all the way through for the first time. I hadn't seen it since, and it's one that now that I'm an adult and understand the world way more is terrifying. This isn't horror in the traditional sense, but still scary in its own way. So where I'm going to start then is that having rewatched this, the story isn't all that deep, but there's so much commentary in it. This is also ahead of its time. I'm assuming the subliminal messaging was known, so I can't imagine that Carpenter, who wrote and directed this, made up the idea. Something scary here is that this is even more relevant today now that it's made, you know, 25 years later. Let me go deeper into this idea. We now live in a 24-hour news cycle. The news also doesn't necessarily have a standard that it has to adhere to thanks to lawmakers over the years. They are now entertainment. They're also biased toward one party or the other, depending on the channel you are watching. So the news is given at a slant. That is part of what we're given here. What they're doing is that we have these aliens are using a beam from the broadcast to influence us. There are hidden messages underneath everything we consume. Something that is also scary is that this has pointed out a larger divide between the wealthy and middle class they're being exploited to the point where they're becoming poor. Despite this, the middle class continues to work until they die. This isn't horror in the traditional sense, but it's sad and terrifying nonetheless. So I do want to be careful here. I'm towing the line of conspiracy theories, and I don't want to go down that road. I do believe that our government doesn't tell us everything. There is a divide that is being created between both sides of the two-party system. The politicians do want us against each other, so the middle class instead of the middle class coming together. We aren't electing people on their merits, but what we're striving to do is instead electing our specific party. The Democrats and Republicans aren't that much different from each other, at least at the top. I saw all that because that's exactly what they're doing in this movie. The aliens are controlling everything and then cascading that down, and it's wild that this still fits today. For as much as I love this message here, I do have an issue with the whimsical nature of this movie. I love the banter between Nada and Frank, and they are Piper and David. Both just want the best for themselves and their family in the case of the latter. Now, the comedy between these two is good as we see them have more common ground on mutual respect. The overly long fight between the two is a bit much. Nada's rampage after finding, out the glass, after finding the glass is another. 
What I do find interesting is that this feels like a Western in the vein of like a Clint Eastwood movie. I don't recall ever hearing Piper's character's name being Nada. He's almost like the man with no name. He's coming into the city and ends up in a fight to clean it up. I know that Carpenter loved Westerns and wanted to make one. I'd argue he puts vibes of that in here. I just wish they would have played it a bit straighter. Since I've already moved over to the acting a bit, let's continue there. Piper and David are excellent. This is almost a buddy movie with them, but it takes time for them to get to that common ground. They are fighting for two different things. Now, they are more similar than they realize, though. Both are in great shape, which helps as our heroes for this action parts of the movie. I thought Foster plays a smaller role, but I thought she was solid in it. Her eyes are so striking as usual. I love seeing the likes of like George Buck Flower, Peter Jason, and Jason Robards III. I didn't recognize the latter, to be honest, but the acting here is good across the board, as we have a lot of good character actors. All that's left then would be filmmaking. The best part of it for me is the cinematography. I love setting up this world. Once Nada gets the glasses, it opens up our eyes, and I'm there for that. Seeing all the hidden messages and not believing them at first are great. I love trying to figure out who is an alien and who isn't. Even worse, though, is who is an alien sympathizer. This plays on my fear of not truly knowing someone, and it plays on that as well. So this is also a body-snatching narrative, but not in the movie per se. The effects help here as well. They're practical and don't necessarily hold up as well, but there's a charm to that. I do love the world in black and white behind the sunglasses, though. Other than that, the soundtrack isn't the best in a Carpenter movie, but I do love that baseline that we get as it's better than in most other films, to be honest. So in conclusion, I'm glad that I finally got the chance to rewatch this. This hits closer to home the older I get and understand the world more. There is a cheesy action film here with horror elements. Now the true horror though comes from the reveals and how close to reality uh, elements are of this. I do wish the tone was less of the whimsical nature at times. The western vibe of Nada's character works though. I would say the acting is good across the board. This is well made from the cinematography effects and soundtrack. Not my favorite Carpenter movie, but it might be the one with the best commentary of them. I'd recommend this one to horror and non-horror fans alike. So my rating here for They Live is a 9 out of 10. So I'm going to go ahead then and get you over to the tra trailer of my first featured review. Good day. Hey, be home by dinner. I love you. Good morning, Mr. Fielding. Good morning, Catherine. And here are your daughters, Angela and Catherine. It's about seven hours ago, and that's the last information we have. Catherine! Angela! If you can hear this, we love you. Please come home. Hey, hey, you found her? What are you and Catherine doing out there in those woods? We were just walking and walking. That's all I remember. Angela, can you tell your dad how long you were gone? A few hours. Baby, you've been gone three days. What'd you say? I didn't say nothing. Did you say something? Hey, baby. You okay? Wherever those girls went, they brought something back with them. The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Blood. The body in the blood. 
people out there who have. You have some experience with possession. Yes, more than I'd like. I believe you can help get our girls back. Exorcism is a ritual. Every culture, every religion, they all use different methods. It's going to take all of them. We've met before. Mother. What did you do? Is that Catherine's heartbeat? They're beating in sync. And for my first feature review is going to be The Exorcist Believer. This is from here in 2023, directed by David Gordon Green. Now, this is officially written by Peter Sattler and Green. Now, the screen story is written by Scott Teams, Danny McBride, and Green. And then this is based on the characters by William Peter Blatty. Now, this stars Leslie Odom Jr., Jennifer Nettles, and Ann Dowd, while also featuring Ellen Burstyn, Raphael Sabarge, Norbert Leo Butts, Olivia O'Neill, Lydia Jewett, Chloe Tricos, E.J. Bonilla, Antoni Coroni, Lise Johnstone, Danny McCarthy, Noah Murphy, Celeste Olivia, Chandu Karuni, and Emily Rachel Gordon. There's also one that I'm leaving out because it's a bit of a spoiler, so I'm just going to leave that there, but this is a horror film. That is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.2 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being when two girls disappear into the woods and return three days later with no memory of what happened to them, the father of one of the girls seeks out Chris McNeil, who's been forever altered by what happened to her daughter 50 years ago. Now, this is a movie that I was, when I heard it was coming out, it made me leery. Green, as the co-writer and director of this, he popped on my radar with Blumhouse's Halloween trilogy that he did. I'll be honest, I love the 2018 film when that you know kicked it off and have cooled on it since. I think he makes solid films, and it made me wonder what he would do here, you know, doing a follow-up to another beloved film, especially one from the horror genre. So before getting to the movie itself, let me do some featured notes, and this one's going to be one of the longer ones that I've done for this. And I'll start with our director of Green. He's done 21 films. I've seen seven. Not in genre, I've seen Pineapple Express, The Sitter, and Prince Avalanche. I've seen all of his horror works that are out. These would be Halloween Kill or Halloween Kills and Ends. I've heard rumors that he's doing or he's not going to be doing Deceiver and Redeemer, the next two Exorcist films. So we shall see what happens there. Now we have a lot of additional directors here. Nate Meyer has done both Ends and Now This. Max Sturgeon has done Venom, Let There Be Carnage, Ends and Now This. 
There's some other ones that these people have done that I'm just going to be leaving out. I'm kind of going brief with these people. But we have Alessa Saravalli, who has only done this in genre. Aaron J. Stone, this is his only credit. The same for Scotty Jizzle and Bennett Gammon. Spencer Jarvis has two that I've seen. This is the only one in horror. He also helped out on What Men Want. Gabriella Latora has done two with this. And then the Roadhouse remake that looks like it's featuring Jake Gyllenhaal and Conor McGregor. We also have Stephen W. Moore who helped on Megan. And this as well as Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. Now let's go over to our writers here. First is going to be McBride. He has written nine. I've seen four. All in horror with the Halloween trilogy and now this. Bringing Green back up, he has 15 credits, and I've seen five. He uh, Prince Avalanche is the only one who's not in horror, and in genre, he has done the same for as McBride. Teams I brought up with Insidious, The Red Door, earlier this year. I'm now at four of his six for six, 66%. I've seen all of his works in horror. Then to Sattler, he has four. I've only seen this one, and he helped to write all three of the Blumhouse Exorcist trilogy, it looks like. So then I'm also going to give credit here to the great writer of William Peter Blatty who wrote the original novel. I've seen five of his eight films adapted from his works, all in horror with Exorcist, The Exorcist 2, the two prequels, and now this sequel. I have not seen The Ninth Configuration and the two sequels that aren't out yet of these movies. So then taking it to the cast, I'll start with Odom. He has 28 films. I've seen five. I know him from Hamilton and Red Tails. He was also in Glass Onion, the Knives Out sequel. I've also seen Murder on the Orient Express. It looks like the only one out and is this one here, and he's coming back for Exorcist the Redeemer at this time. Moving over to Dowd, I've seen 13 movies with her in it. She has 66 total. Not in horror, I've seen Side Effects, Bushwhacked, and The Babysitters. In horror, she has three. It is Hereditary and then this that are out. She's also in Deceiver. Next, I'll look at Nettles. She has 10 credits. I've only ever seen this. Only one in horror. Then last will be Burston. She has been in 143 films. I've seen 11. She's been in Requiem for a Dream, Interstellar, and The Fountain. She's done nine in horror. I've seen five. I've seen the original, and then now this, Red Dragon and the Wicker Man remake. She was also in the documentary Leap of Faith, William Friedkin on The Exorcist. She's slated for Deceiver and Redeemer, as well as being in something called River of Fundament and then A Deadly Vision. I have not seen or really heard of these last two. So then, for this movie here, we start in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. We have a married couple of Victor, portrayed by Odom, and Seren Fielding, portrayed by Graves. He is a photographer and is taking some great shots, you know, capturing the beauty of this area. Now, she is pregnant and goes shopping. She has this great moment where she is given a blessing by a local shaman. It is supposed to always protect her unborn child. Tragedy strikes when an earthquake hits leaving Soren in critical condition and Victor given an impossible decision. The life of his wife or that of his unborn child. It's actually kind of interesting. Jamie and I talked about this and then she had, you know, quite the birthing ordeal. So this is kind of scary and it kind of hit me in the feels a little bit here. We then shift 13 years into the present and we're in Georgia. Victor lives with his daughter, Angela, portrayed by Jewett. Now, she is curious about her mother. I get the vibe that Victor talks about her, but he's overprotective over her things and that's all he has left, his child and then these items. He is overprotective as well of Angela. She wants to stay or study after school with a friend. It takes work, but he relents. He It should be pointed out that their neighbor is a nurse and portrayed by Dowd. Now, the friend is Catherine, portrayed by Olivia O'Neill. 
They have other plans. The two head out into the woods to contact Soren using a crystal. Angela was supposed to be home for dinner, and when she wasn't, this causes Victor to reach out to her friend that she was supposed to be with. That is how it gets revealed with what happened. A search commences, but they don't find anything. Three days later, the two of them are found in a barn. It is miles from where they disappeared. The girls have no memory, and they are different. It is interesting that Victor isn't religious, so we see how he tries to help with science or tries to make sense of things. Catherine's parents are Miranda, portrayed by Nettles, and Stuart, portrayed by McCarthy. Now, they turn to their religion. When a logical explanation can't be reached to help, Victor searches out another skeptic. So that's how I'll leave my recap and introduction to the characters. Well, I want to start with something that was brought up in my opening, that this is Green trying to do another follow-up to a classic. Now, The Exorcist is interesting in that its first sequel isn't good. Exorcist 3 is one that many, including myself, think is worthy. Aside from that, the two prequels fall short. It feels here like we are trying to get another, like, requel of sorts. This feels more like a sequel, at least. My guess is that they're ignoring all the other films and just using the original. That doesn't hurt it, though, but, I mean, you actually could use some of the other stuff, but I don't really necessarily know if they do, and it doesn't get referenced. So then we'll start with some positives. This plays on the fear of parents like the first one does. Victor is in an interesting place where his wife passed away, so he only has Angela. He does everything to protect her. That adds fear and tension, and despite everything he does, she falls into peril. That is good. There is even more of this that goes on when we get to the exorcism scene. The parents are forced to choose which one of the possessed girls dies, and this is impossible. This is also plays with the cold open when Victor had to make a similar decision. I also don't mind with how they factor in with the original. After the ordeal with Reagan, who is portrayed by Linda Blair in The Exorcist, Chris McNeil, portrayed by Burston, went on a journey to study different religions and how they handle exorcisms. This leads Victor to her when he notices a similarity between Reagan and his Angela. I do think there's a misstep here. They should have used Pazuzu. Whether it was in statue or a form of it, I think that would deepen this a bit more because, I mean, they allude to it as this demon is supposed to know Chris. And a plus would be that this gives flashes of our two possessed children being tortured on the other side. That gave me vibes of Hellraiser or, like, Poltergeist. I'm glad they don't show too much there. I like the development of the first movie story to grow into what we get here. So we also have this idea of different religions, and that's an interesting one as well. I'm a firm believer that all major religions are just a form of each other. Sumerian to Babylonian to Greek and even Christianity. If you delve into the stories, there are minor tweaks to the stories or characters. They might condense down multiple gods into one. Therefore, the rites of exorcism might be slightly different, but in the end, they could achieve the same goal. I like that they're inclusive here to have Victor, the other parents, and adults utilize what they can to save these children. I do have issues here that I'll delve into in a spoiler section. I'll have a warning ahead of that, though. So the last bit for the story I want to cover would also pull in filmmaking. So this is a child in peril story, like I said. It is the innocent and having them punished to torment their parents. I like the cinematography as that was good. There was one scare that creeped me out. We get another image like this a bit later as well. The effects were also good along with the editing. The look of the possessed girls isn't strong or as strong. I also think that the two divides of our attention is a bit much. This doesn't ruin it though. It doesn't necessarily add too much though either. The sound design was solid. The only drawback is they're not using the iconic theme song here. So the last bit before I close out my thoughts for this section is going to be that with the acting, I thought that Odom was good as our skeptical father. To be honest, I see parts of me there. So 
that could be it as well. I love seeing how much he cares for his daughter. They tugged at my heartstrings there. I'd say the same for Nettles and McCarthy. They work well as our highly religious parents. Dowd was also good as this nurse who has an interesting past with how things play in. I like seeing Burstyn to reprise her role. O'Neill and Jewett were good as the possessed children. Oh, and that the rest of the cast was solid for what was needed. We also get a cameo at the end that I thought added a little bit of good heart there. It's also a little bit cheesy as well. So then, before I you know, end out this little section, let me do some of the trivia that I found on the IMDb page. It looks like Burstyn had turned down reprising her role and then the offer was double the salary. She thought, I feel the devil is asking my price. And she eventually accepted saying that the salary to fund a scholarship for actors at Pace University where the Actors Studio teaches the program. Burstyn is a lifelong member of the Actors Studio and a co-president. Blumhouse spent $400 million to secure the rights to filming this, and on top of that, they guaranteed a trilogy. If Believer bombs the box office, the next two films still have to be made, which is just wild. Linda Blair was actually an advisor to help the Possessed Girls as a on this film as well. At the beginning of the movie, there's a small sculpted creature that can be seen in Angela's room. This is the same one that Reagan drew with the wings in the first movie. That's a good touch there. There's 50 years between the original and this one. Exodus the Believers intended to be the first of a new trilogy, of course. Due to Taylor Swift's Eras concert film coming out on the 13th of October, this was pulled up to the 6th. This was really only going to be playing in exclusive theater. However, once its theatrical window closes, it was available to stream exclusively on Peacock. Upon release of The Exorcist, its screenwriter and producer Blatty was adamant the audience know the good triumph over evil, telling its director, I don't want the audience to think the devil won. Although the demon's name is unrevealed during the film, much like the demon Pazuzu was not officially named the Exorcist series until the second one with the heretic, although Blatty identified the demon as Pazuzu in the novel, the end credits identify it as Lama Shutu in Mesopotamia mythology. This is a dynamic figure that preys on pregnant women during childbirth to feed on the newborn infants. Her sworn enemy is none other than Pazuzu, who, despite being the bringer of famine, can be invoked to protect against Lama Shutu, which is weird. The first classroom scene, they're watching a dramatized version of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Nothing in this movie contradicts anything in the previous films in the series. It only contradicts a television series by having Chris, who was killed in the series, I guess, being alive here without any explanation. So that's a spoiler for the show. Sorry about that. Then in conclusion, I wasn't sure if I would come down with on my thoughts here. I think that this is better than the first sequel and the prequels. There's a good things here with the impossible decision for parents and questioning faith. That is part of the core of what the original did. As a sequel, you need to ramp things up. They do that by having two possessed girls. I'm not sure if it touches the original though. And I mean, it's not even close, but I'm just saying if it touches some of the fear... There is homages and nods to the classic. I do think this is done well enough despite my issues. The acting was good. It's just missing some things for me to come together. I think that this is worth the viewing. It isn't as bad as some people are making it out. It is a little bit generic, so I do see if that's what your problem is. I know others will come down harsh for not being the original, which isn't necessarily fair though either. So my rating for Excess the Believer is going to be a 7 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is do a spoiler section here. If you don't want to hear that, go ahead and skip ahead. I'll have the time in the show notes. But if you would like to hear a spoiler section, go ahead and wait here. So what I want to start for this section is that Victor used to be religious and turned his back on it after what happened to Soren. 
he is almost a mirror of Chris in the first one outside of her just not following religion. There wasn't a tragedy there. What is interesting is that this is that she has come around to spiritualism after what happened to Ragan. Not so much Christianity or Catholicism, but just the idea of higher powers. I can respect that. The parents of the other daughter are Christians, and they come off a bit as like Bible thumpers, where they look down their nose at Angela and Victor as almost heathens. Now, a positive that has been brought up that multiple religions help with the exorcism. The Catholic Church denies them, so the priest shows up and has Anne take over. Now, she has an interesting history of wanting to become a nun, but due to a decision there, did like, decided against it. Now, we have a pastor played by Raphael Sabarge. Now, he helps. There's also Dr. B. Hibby, portrayed by Okawu Akpak Asali, Wasali, something like that. Now, who is closer to like a Southern Baptist or could even be like a voodoo witch doctor. I love this idea of doing everything to help these girls and it's progressive. I think this fails though. Victor comes around to find religion. That is fine. I expected it. It is in line with Chris seeking an exorcism for Reagan. Chris helps, but then she's stabbed in the eyes with a cross by Catherine. I'm not sure what the purpose of this was other than just to be shocking. The Catholic priest who comes in to help... Like, he goes against what he's being told, and he comes in of his own volition, is killed almost immediately. If he succeeds, it makes me feel like this is saying that religion is the strongest. They ultimately fail, and Catherine dies. What is interesting here is her father is broke. He chose her, and it looks like Angela will die. Now, there's this protective spell that saves her again, so Catherine is taken. Now, this action happens earlier, is that the father of Victor selected his daughter... Oh, or selected the mother over the daughter and then she still survived so they're trying to say this spell is actually the most powerful thing i'm not sure what this movie is trying to say or what the point is trying to get across it is bleak i'll give it that i wasn't expecting it to go there so that's partially why i'm giving it credit this does feel like it is saying in the end that we give into religion i would though to protect my daughter so there is that even though i'm an atheist I think that this is doing things. I'm just not sure it sticks to landing with knowing what it wants to convey. So that's where I have a bit of a problem there. So then if you suck around for this spoiler section, let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. the Earth is invaded by indestructible moon monsters. Their ghastly mission, death for all humans. What astounding technical developments are being made to protect mankind? Robot Monster brings you an actual preview of the devastating forces of our future unsuspected revelations of incredible horrors that will terrify you with their brutal reality. There is no escape from me. Very well. I will recalculate. Your death will be indescribable. Fool humans, there is no escape.
And for my second featured review is going to be Robot Monster from 1953. This is directed by Phil Tucker, written by Wyatt Ordung. This stars George Nader, Gregory Moffat, and Claudia Barrett, while also featuring Selena Royal, John Mylung, Pamela Paulson, George Barrows, and John Brown. This is a comedy family horror sci-fi film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.0 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being The Monstrous Roman attempts to annihilate the last family alive on Earth but finds himself falling for their beautiful daughter. So this is a movie that I didn't know about until looking for horror from 1953. The name sounded interesting and has a good poster. Aside from that, I double-checked the writer and director as well as our starring cast just to make sure I had the right one. I didn't see a synopsis just knowing that this was probably going to be science fiction. So let me do some of the featured notes before I get into the movie itself, and I'll start with our director of Tucker. He has 10 credits in this role. I've only ever seen this, only one that he's done in horror. This is going to be a common theme. Then we also have Robert E. Barnes, who helped with some additional directing. I've seen one of his seven films, again, only foray into horror. The writer is Ordung. He has written four movies. I've only ever seen this one. He did have one other one in horror, though, a rarity for this, is First Man Into Space from later in the decade. Moving to our cast, we'll start with Nader. He, this was the first of his 42 works and the only one that I've seen. He did do one other one in horror, which was Beyond Atlantis from 1973. I had not heard of that one. Then to his co-star of Barrett, she was in 13 roles. I've only ever seen this, only one in horror for her. Last is Moffat. He did four pictures. I've only ever seen this one once again, only one in horror for him as well. So then, for here, we start this off with siblings playing Spaceman. The boy is Johnny, portrayed by Moffat, and he has a ray gun as well as a cool setup for a helmet that he's wearing. His sister is Carla. Now, she wants to play house instead. The two wander off to the mouth of a cave. There are two archaeologists there. One of them is Roy, portrayed by Nader, and then his professor, portrayed by Mylung. Johnny is fascinated to learn what they're doing, and he asks if they have seen any spacemen in the cave drawings. So then they're interrupted by the children's mother, portrayed by Royal, and then another sister of Alice, portrayed by Barrett. The children are told that they need to go back to the picnic to take a nap. Roy and the professor help to ensure that Johnny goes, but he sneaks off while everyone is asleep. That is where things take a turn. We see a burst of light, and then we see dinosaurs fighting each other. We learn that an invasion took place. Most of the world's population has been eliminated. There are only a few left. Johnny is spying on Roman the monster. Now, this is voiced by John Brown, and then the body is done by Barrows. So, back on the planet is Roman, and then he is being led by Great Guidance, Barrows and voiced by Brown as well. Now, they tell this creature on Earth to get rid of the last few survivors. For whatever reason, they cannot detect them. Now, this is where things get odd. Roy used to date Alice from what we learn. Alice is living in a destroyed place with her father, who is Mylung, her mother, and two siblings. They need to find a way to defeat Roman before they're killed. As the synopsis said, this creature is feeling something he hasn't towards Alice. It causes it to pause in killing off these people. This also gives humans time to plan. So that's really my recap introduction of the characters. Where I want to start is that this is an interesting sci-fi horror film. What I've gathered is that this didn't have a big budget. It looks like it was filmed in 3D, but the only things that seem to do that are like bubbles from a machine. There's also a burst of light that'll happen a few times that comes towards the screen. Then something to the end with Roman. I'm fine there, but an interesting choice. This also seems to be one that was panned as well as being featured in a book about the Razzies. 
So I think this came out before they were doing that, but they still have a lot of things to say. So then let me start with some positives. I do think we do some good things here with the concept. You can work with a limited cast by having the world ended. Our family was on a picnic in an area where they don't live in the country of what I'm guessing is California. When you shift it to the same area, that's where they're surviving now. I like the idea of Roman coming here to wipe out humanity and then showing that being around us has softened this monster. It upsets great guidance, causing this one to want to eliminate the tainted creature back on Earth. The use of their advanced ray to kill off humanity also works. The problem is that I would say that there are things here that we've seen elsewhere and just done better though. To then go to a negative with the story, there is a trope here that I knew immediately and it annoyed me. I won't spoil it here even though this is 70 plus years old. The change to characters was too abrupt so I knew that they were going for this. There is another thing that they could have used and the ray could have been part of how it happened as an explanation. The trope is one that I despise. Since it wasn't used all that well here, that's a negative for me. The last thing I will say is that will also involve cinematography. I love that they shot this near the desert. It feels desolate and that there aren't a lot of people around. Also using a building that is destroyed for our survivors to hold up as well. What is funny is that they probably aren't that far from people. The cinematography here was, was strong with that. I'd also say that I'm glad they didn't lean too much into showcasing the 3D. That would have been another notch down for me. So I'll finish out the filmmaking with the effects being next. I love the look of Roman and great guidance, even though it's simple. I also believe it is the same suit. Barrows is an actor that would take on April's and Don suits like this at least a few different times. I've also seen him in the ghost in the invisible bikini. It doesn't look great, this ape suit or this alien suit, whatever you want to call it, but I have a soft spot for what they're doing with it practically. There is footage from other movies with the dinosaurs edited in. I'm not sure why they used it there. It doesn't fit outside of trying to indicate time travel or another planet. That doesn't go anywhere. The sound design and track are also fine. There is creepy music that my wife asked me if I was, it was from my movie while I was downstairs and she was up in our room. Credit to creeping her out. That will then just take me to the acting. This has an amateur feel across the board. Nader has a good look as our lead. He fits the character well. What impressed me here was Barrett as his brilliant mind in the fight against Roman. That wasn't something you would always see a lot from this era. She's a strong woman, so credit her there. Moffat was solid as his boy. Barrows was good. Build to take on this characters. And I like the robotic voice done by Brown. Together they bring Roman and Great Guidance to life. I do feel that Royal and Paulson were underused while Mylong was fine as well. So then let me do a little bit of trivia that I found on the IMDb page here. In 1984, MTV showed this film as in its original 3D format. MTV offered 3D glasses by mail order ahead of the broadcast date. The scenes on the view scheme presented by Roman come from a variety of sources. Shots of New York and apocalyptic ruins are matte paintings by Irving Block from Captive Woman from 1952. Shots of the headquarters of the Great Guidance, a rocket ship is launching position, was originally created for Rocket Ship XM from 50, also painted by Block. This is one of the most lucrative movies of its day with a box office of more than $1 million on a budget of $20,000. Reportedly, this was shot entirely outdoors without sets in four days, which impressive to them, probably how they could keep the budget down. The 3D film archive will be releasing a new 4K transfer of this on Blu-ray and DVD. Both True 3D and Anaglyph 3D formats will be accessible on discs as well as the 2D standard 2D. The discs are expected to be released in 2022. I'm not sure if they came out or not. 
Most of this was shot in Bronson Canyon. The scenes in the ruined home are shot in a hilly residential area, originally released in 3D. After the lightning flash, the dinosaurs fights and footage come from other films. The large lizards are from 1 million BC, which I have seen. That's from 40. That was supervised by Roy Seawright. One brief shot of two stop motion triceratops fighting is from Lost Continent from 51. What I was referring to is that according to Michael Medvid and Harry Medvid in the book The Golden Turkey Awards, director Tucker attempted suicide after this was released because a critical reaction was negative. He put a gun to his head, pulled the trigger, and he missed. I don't know how that happened. I'm glad that it did, though. Close examination of Roman's helmet revealed to be very similar to the helmets worn by moon men on the lunar surface in Republic Pictures serial Radar Men from the Moon from 52. Listed amongst the 100 most amusingly bad movies ever made in the Golden Raspberry Award founder John Wilson's book, The Official Razzie's Movie Guide. The often incongruous and inexplicable music score are composed and directed by 14-time Academy Award winner Elmer Bernstein, so that does have that going for it. In all the movie posters, Roman is shown having a skull face. In the film, he is, has a simulated man's face vaguely seen through gauze. Although the movie posters say Moon Monsters, the Roman tells people he's from the planet Roman creative this is considered to be the first science fiction film with stereophonic sound topping many lists of worst movies ever made including an inaugural appearance in the golden turkey awards robot monster did make one noteworthy achievement on the positive side it made the east side on the bronson caves and icon and used the surrounding canyon walls better than most other films shot there Released a negative critical response and weak box office. The title was changed to Monster from Mars. The film, however, illustrates clearly the monsters are from the moon or from the planet Roman. One of the films included in the 50 worst films of all time and how they got that way by Harry Medville and Randy Lowell. In the popular 1980 Golden Turkey Awards by Medvid and Medvid, this movie won the award for most ridiculous monster movie history. And in the 2000 memoir on writing a memoir craft, Stephen King recalled this film was the first thing he ever saw on television after his family brought their first TV set in 1958. So in conclusion, this is a low-budget movie that is flawed. It still has some good aspects as well, though. I don't mind the sci-fi angle here as we have a killer alien that named Roman and the use of a killer ray. My problem is that a trope that was used, more care could have been put into for it to work. The acting, though, was fine. I like the look of the monsters. This isn't a great movie and not one that I can recommend to everybody. It is one that is fun enough to have people over for drinks as you don't necessarily need to pay attention to follow it. So my rating for Robot Monster is going to be a 5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. And welcome back one last time here. And just to kind of go through my social medias and stuff... If you'd like to send me an email, you can send that at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of feedback, or if you have any questions or anything, go ahead and shoot them there, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Or if you want to send me any screener links or anything like that, anything podcast-related, you can send it via that way. If you'd like to read any of the written reviews, I'll direct you to Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. On Instagram, I'm David OSU87. On Threads, I'm David OSU87. And then Journey with a Cinephile has its own Instagram at Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. Now, all of these ones I will be sharing like my ratings on, whatnot. I know for Letterboxd, all of the reviews are going to be for horror and non-horror alike. Instagram, I will be sharing over there is my different like posters and everything for things that I'm reviewing. 
doing. My personal account, you might see some personal pictures every now and then if I can remember to take them. And then, you know, kind of same thing for threads. And then Journey with a Cinephile is going to be more of just kind of posting podcast-related different stuff over there. And I'll also direct you to the Nightclub Discord channel as I have a little section over there where we have some good conversations. I post all of my reviews and any new podcast episodes or some of the things I'm watching when I actually have time to post that. So keep an eye out over there and I'll have the link for that and everything else in the show notes there. And then I'm also going to direct you if a way that you can actually listen to the show is going to be through the Pod Nation TV this is a streaming service and everything like that there will be a link in the blog posts for all of my episodes so if you'd like to listen to it that way it's kind of a cool little thing you can definitely do that through like roku tv and there's some other apps for it as well just as another way for you to consume this podcast if you decide to there's also a lot of other great shows that are on that network as well And for my next episode is going to be another of my traverse of the threes and i'm going to try to get to the theater to watch when Evil Lurks, this one looks pretty good. They have some weird hours at the Gateway Film Center, so I'm going to try to get to that. If not, there's been some horror movies coming out to like Shudder and stuff that I would check out as well. And then I'm going to be pairing this up with Mesa of the Lost Women. That's going to be my 1953 film. I'll try to figure out what the through line is for whatever I end up watching. But I'm also going to be checking out Malum. I do believe this came to stars, so I will stream it on there. And I'm also going to watch Sweet 16. This is going to be the last of my... Rewatches of my Traverse to the Threes for 1983. And then I'm also going to be having you know a bunch more mini reviews and everything as I keep working through October movie challenges and everything like that. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here for this outro. So I will say is, or anything with this episode, is thank you so much for listening. Whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and doing it. Have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. And I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending.